Hi, I'm Hope. And I'm Rajiv. And this is the African Pre-Seed Podcast. Welcome to the very first episode of the show. If you are an Africa-focused founder or investor keen on learning more about Africa's tech ecosystem, we've got you covered. So, in our first episode ever, we asked the question, but guys, why is Agritech so hard though? And a little later on in the episode, we'll be joined by a Kenyan Agritech founder by the name of Titan Yetich, whose startup is helping farmers raise productivity, increase yield, and manage risk. But before we get to that, Rajiv and I are going to play a little thing called... So what I'm loving right now is Drive to Survive Season 4, which has dropped on Netflix. It's amazing because I get to see the crazy previous season and how it all unfolded on camera, real time. Who do you support? Lewis Hamilton, hands down. Is he going to get his eighth world championship this year? Definitely has to. And then, is it the driver or the car? Well, I'm inclined to say the driver, but I think last season proved that the car sometimes can take you super far like Red Bull did. But I'm still backing, you know, Lewis this season. I think he'll be able to overcome the odds. So definitely the driver. Okay. Hope backs the jockey. And what's your favorite thing on the internet? Ah, uh, I am a sucker for going down rabbit holes on YouTube. Right now, I'm currently watching the new auditions on the newest season of American Idol. I absolutely love talent shows. Ah, amazing. And that's... And now on to the main event. Why is Agritech so hard though? Yeah, because according to Brighter Bridges, 60% of global arable land is currently sitting on our continent. Two thirds of employment comes from it. And there are approximately 33 million smallholder farmers contributing to most of our food supply. Yet less than 5% of VC funding goes to the space. And with that, here's our chat with Taita. Taita, why is AgriTech so hard though? As an entrepreneur, I think it's difficult because you have a lot of infrastructural challenges. You still have farmers that do not have access to water, roads, even internet, no access to education in the past. So any innovation has to take that into context. And then you have also externalities, right? 93% of farmers in Africa depend on rain for water. That multiplies the problem even bigger. So... To me, they appear as very big problems and, and it makes it very difficult for people to create solutions in ag. But I see it as, a, as an opportunity because it allows us to try and address some of those challenges. When I look across the African startup ecosystem, regardless of the sector, there's an increasing theme that I've termed the four Ds, a process of digitization, Yep. which leads to or enables decentralization, which then allows for disintermediation. And then there's a data play. We've seen this play out in other sectors, such as fintech. How do you see this evolving in the agri-tech sector specifically? Because on the one hand, there's a school of thought that says we need to enable a more decentralized uh, value chain because that's just the way it is. On the other hand, the only way to effectively leverage technology is to bring that together to centralize, generate economies of scale, uh, and, and to use technologies. Where do you fall along that spectrum? One of the things that people typically forget about the success that people in ag are compared to in fintech is that fintech really scaled, in my view, because there was a huge penetration of mobile money and mobile phones and, and uh, connection 
of people to 2G, 3G, and now 4G cell towers. Because ag follows a different way where value is not instantaneous, like fintech, where if you're moving money, it's instant. For ag, the value is nature-based. So if you're creating a value for a farmer, if you're increasing production, it's not going to happen today or tomorrow or next month. It's going to take six months, nine months, or even a year, depending on the crops. And crops like avocados, it can take five years to see value. And so because you're competing with nature and investments are not that patient or people want to get a return now, then that becomes difficult for people to immediately see value in ag. So how we look at it is, okay, we have to be pragmatic and accept that farmers are offline and are very decentralized. But these same farmers are leveraging on an existing solution, which is a mobile money platform. How we look at it is that if we can then develop products that take the same learning curve as fintech, where you have app data being generated through mobile phones for farmers, and you have a physical presence of your agents or your partners supporting these farmers who are offline, then you can start generating data that you can start monetizing in the future. I think, Taito, you touch on a very important point because part of the complexities with why it makes agritech so difficult is just how do you access farmers, how do you create stickiness with farmers, and then how do you find the means to access them and provide value to them at scale? What have you seen as some of the insights on ground that you've gathered around what drives that actual stickiness? And I think a lot of startups tend to start with financing. Does it really drive stickiness or is it solutions on ground in terms of providing productivity and optimization of yield through tech. What have you learned from that space? I think I have an advantage of starting a business that was purely offline construction to now running an AgTech SaaS platform. And what we've learned is that what drives stickiness is one, the ability of the farmer to see physically the product or engage with it or have a sense of trust to the product. Now, if it's purely an online platform, right, we have people, as you've said, providing finance or providing market linkage. We haven't seen sickness because when a farmer has a challenge, they have to either call someone or they have to deal with an app and it's not answering the questions that they have. But when they have an agronomist or an agro dealer next to their farm or at the center of their village or a village champion that they can go to and speak to, and tell them that I'm having a challenge with this product, what do I need to do? Then it drives stickiness. What we've seen is that farmers predominantly in Kenya have kind of a trust component that they put on a product. And that's defined by how easy is it for me to get support and how easy can I get someone in my farm to show me how it's done? Or if it's not someone in my farm, how easy is it for me to go to a nearby farm and see how it's done in order for me to copy, paste and come and do it at my own farm? As we all know, uh, when you're a farmer, when you're an aggregator, wherever you sit along that value chain, this is all based on relationship. And disrupting through technology often comes at the expense of some of those relationships where things become a lot more transactional. How have you seen that play out where technology can thrive in certain environments where we're not trying to maintain certain relationships that we have along the agricultural value chain in Africa? We have seen technology thrive in areas where farmers are getting more like a turnkey support 
on that technology where a farmer feels that I can get access to all the needs that I have across the value chain. Now, typically farmers have to make over 27 decisions from planting to harvesting. And all those decisions or questions are answered by different partners, seed partners, fertilizer partners, market partners, and agronomy partners. And currently, because different companies are answering those questions, farmers are struggling to have a one single source of truth. So right now, they are compensating that with their village champion or the agro-dealer they have seen for the past 20 years around their village. Now, technology, I feel, has a very important role to play here because if you can create a platform where farmers can be able to get a single source of truth, or if not, a space where they can get answers for every single question that they have as they grow their crop across the value chain, then it can optimize production and build relationship with farmers and with scale. That's what I think. I do think, you know, we are making a lot of headway around the digitization. Essentially, now we're at that point where data is becoming the new sort of oil, so to say. What has been your experience in terms of who are the right set of stakeholders within an ag context to kind of leverage that data, but then also pay for it so that you can then pass down some of the commercial aspects further down the chain to enable more scale as well? One thing that we need to be very honest about is that farmers value money more than technology. So if farmers need money, then the premise of the discussion becomes then how can we then improve putting money in the farmer's hand and less pushing of the technology into the farmer's hand. We see that as having a competition approach to the value chain and less on competition, where every value chain partner, it's like a baton of handing over the farmer across the value chain up to where you reach the market buyer or the exit point for the farmer per se. Now, what's happening is that every value chain partner are competing within each other. So you have seed companies competing, fertilizer companies competing, agro dealers competing, and the farmer has to keep on figuring out who should I work with along the value chain. While when it's a competition where we all know that if the farmer is able to grow and earn more money, then they can come back to buy mobile products, then it becomes more of a collaborative approach. Now, to do that, there has been different business models or ideas of how people are addressing it. We think that in order to make technology much more affordable to the farmer, it needs in the interim to be free, where a farmer can access that technology in order to improve income for their farm at no cost to them. Because the moment you start charging for a platform or a technology solution, then to them, it's not a priority. I'd rather use something else or do something else because I need money now. Now, in order to sustain that freemium is generate insights or data that you can share with partners. And that's what we've done. If banks, insurance companies and seed companies can be able to view data on what's happening on the farm at no cost to the bank, and that data is being generated from the farmer at no cost, then it allows the farmer to keep on improving production and it creates a kind of stickiness on the platform because they know that if I use a platform that I'm able to get a bank, I'm able to get an agro dealer. And then you can start charging once they have seen the value in it, once they've gone through a season. I think that's what we are seeing as we continue rolling out across Kenya. 
I want to ask a very blunt question here. In reality, if I'm a smallhold farmer, do I care about commercializing and optimizing for some future benefit that's going to enable the value chain in certain ways? Or am I focused on what I need to do now with the people I need to do directly around me? You're very right. No farmer cares about that. But they care about where can I get the information I need now to grow this crop? And that's what they're constantly struggling with. So how I say it is, if you can answer that question by providing an agronomist physically first on the farm, helping the farmer, then the agronomist can introduce the farmer to the technological component in the long run. And I think part of it also, which is quite important to highlight and tie that like your perspective as well, is, you know, what Rajiv is alluding to, there are varying types of farmers as well, right? So you get sort of on the one end subsistence farmers, and then you get sort of the small scale farmers that do care about generating a little bit of an income. What has been your experience in terms of some of the other stakeholders that sort of the missing middle and what are some of the needs and priorities or the potential that exists within the space? That's something also we've struggled and and I think we've come to see that there is a missing middle and we like to call that missing middle the peri-urban farmer who is located around the cities, has a small plot of land, has good access to water, internet, has a smartphone, but is struggling with how can I optimize production in my small plot of land. And because of population pressure from the city, land sizes actually in Kenya are getting smaller and smaller. So... These peri-urban farmers are quite aggressive in adopting really new innovative technologies that help them improve production. And that's where we see is an easy way to penetrate the market and introduce intelligent or climate smart technologies. As opposed to going to subsistence or smallholder farmers or other rural farmers who the main point is I just need food and a little bit of extra harvest in order to get money. For the peri-urban, there's a commercial sense because they're located next to the cities that it makes sense for me to invest in expensive technologies in order to produce more and keep on supplying to the city. Let's broaden our perspective slightly and pan outside of the African continent and talk about agri-tech more generally. You've, you've been in the space for a while. How do you compare and contrast the way in which the sector has evolved in an Indian context, for example, or, or a Latin American context on the one hand, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, look at markets like Singapore, for example, where they're being very, very innovative because they don't have the land mass that we do. How do you see those markets evolve and what can we learn from that using what we have in Africa? I think fast what's happening across Africa, I believe there's a middle class or what I like to call telephone farmers that have a day job but have the farm somewhere in the in the village or in the rural part. And they're looking at how to help their folks back home to optimize production. And that push, we've seen it across East Africa. We've seen it also in Ghana where we've done a little bit of installations where the working middle class are adopting technology. And the reason why is that they are now seeing agriculture as being a smarter way of farming than what their folks used to do because we are introducing all these tools. Now, what I think India is doing really better, and and I think maybe Africa needs to address this aggregation of farmers, either through cooperatives or circles. And I think India has done a really good job in, in bringing farmers together that grow a certain crop. 
together and registering them. And therefore, if someone has any technology that they want to push through back to the farmers, it's easier to work with a cooperative that supports over 10,000 or 100,000 farmers. In the African context, I think Kenya has made some strides there. We still haven't seen massive movements in other countries such as uh, in Central Africa. And I think that's something that we need to work on, where if we can have organizations that bring together farmers, then it becomes easier to deploy technologies to them. Broadly, there's three types of stakeholders that agritech founders can engage. There's grant funding, there's debt funding and equity funding. What have been some of your lessons and learnings around the three different types of investment potential opportunities in terms of some of the high level pros and considerations that people should take into account as they try to solve within the space? We've had a chance of getting both grants, equity and debt. And the pros, of course, on the grant side is that it's risk-free capital and you can experiment and there's no impact on the business if it doesn't work or if it fails. Now, the cons of it is that it doesn't allow the business to be aggressive enough to take more risks that can make it sustainable post the grant because there is no set driver from the beginning because I can put it in quotes that it's kind of free money. And it's a lot of impact-driven money where it's to do good and there's no much stress on sustainability or profitability per se. And I think that's something that made us for very long be comfortable with grant money as we kept on getting grant money. And it didn't make us really take huge risks and really be aggressive on growth. But when we changed and we started taking uh, equity money, then we started asking ourselves, okay, where do you want to go in the future and what can fuel us to really have a hyper growth? And when you start thinking about hyper growth, where you're moving from 1,000 farms to 10,000 to 100,000 farms, then VC partners and equity partners became our go-to partners and they became the kind of the focus of what we wanted to achieve. Now, the main problem why sometimes ag businesses struggle with bringing in VC partners is back again to the initial statement of it takes time in ag to see traction because you're dealing with nature and you're dealing with a broken infrastructure across multiple markets. But when you have an equity partner or a VC partner that provides patient capital and understands that it's going to take time, but there's value that's going to come out at the end, then it becomes easier for ag businesses to take up more and more of VC and equity partners. You and I were sitting in Nairobi two weeks ago and we had this conversation around the approach and what often is a conundrum for founders because you need funding to grow, but you need to show traction and metrics in order to get the funding. How have you navigated that over the last couple of years from two perspectives? One is as you talk about the pros and cons of executing a hardware versus a more asset light software model. And the second is in terms of customer acquisition and executing a B2B versus a B2C model? I think how we've gone about it is to first explain to investors the current state of the ag space and, and what's happening in the ag space. It's most of the time, we have investors that come with a certain mindset and, and it's always important to show them that in reality on the ground, it's going to take time or rather, it's rather quite impossible to have a purely software asset-like business 
without having the hardware or the physical equipment on the farm to generate the data that the software business can use. That means that we've taken a lot of time to share our experience and, and what we've done as our current traction, because sometimes investors want to see a software platform that is striving in order for them to invest. But on the flip side, we are arguing that we also have a hardware business that is thriving and is growing. And in the long term, we'll generate insights that the software business can then use to grow and scale. Now, when you're talking about the different business models that we have had where you have a B2B, we've looked at working with organizations such as banks that attract farmers onto a software platform. Because one of the greatest needs for customers is how can I continue growing and expanding my production at the farm? And access to capital is always the number one thing that they want fixed or addressed. So convincing financial partners and banks that working with a platform that generates insights on what's happening on the farm is valuable to you has been something that we have really pushed. And I think we've made progress there. And also the risking that lending from banks, because if indeed we are going to lend to farmers, bringing in insurance partners as well to protect against any other unforeseeable circumstance ensures that the banks can lend to farmers and that increases the insights and, and the intentions for farmers to adopt a software platform or a hardware and software platform. On the B2C side, we've seen that Farmers typically don't want to pay for a software solution again if they don't see the value now. But they want to be able to have a source of knowledge and reference, kind of like Google for farmers. So if the solution provides a platform for farmers to access knowledge, then adoption becomes better. Farmers keep on using the platform. And if they use the platform, then you can start integrating and bringing partners on board. That's how we've seen it so far. If you had to sum it up in one thing that you feel is the opportunity cost of not betting on agritech, what would that be? The opportunity cost is you have a growing population, you have a growing middle class that is really interested in farming. In Kenya, about 65% of working middle class have farms that they grow crops. And you have a really growing fintech market. I tend to ask this question, if we're helping fintechs move money from cities to rural homes, where do you think that money is being spent on? About 15% or 20% of what we remit to the villages or rural farms is spent in agricultural expenses or, or practices or equipment. And I think this presents an opportunity for investors to go down the chain and also look at some of the ways that they can reap from that front. Again, I think food is going to be a critical must in the future, and it would make sense for investors to diversify their portfolio and consider ag tech. Wow, lots of useful insights in that conversation. Definitely. And that's the show. Join us next time on the African Pre-Seed Podcast. I'm Hope. And I'm Rajiv. And thanks for listening.